Welcome to Mind Love, episode 251. Today's episode is all about practical guidance for sparking creative thinking every single day. Creativity is often conflated with art. So we think, oh, I don't write songs. I don't, you know, dance. I don't paint paintings. So therefore I'm not creative. You know, all I do is run a marketing team for a mid-sized medical device company or something, right? But I'm not creative. Well, no, if you have to solve problems every day, you are creative. Creativity is problem solving. We can't conflate creativity with art. So if you have to manage other people, if you're an engineer, for example, if you... um are an entrepreneur and you've launched a business and you have to solve any number of problems every day in order to keep your business going. Those are creative acts. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means mind love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Today, I'd love to share a review from Event Jubilee who says, Melissa is an awesome host. Wow, I've listened to a few episodes so far and she had me subscribed at the first. I'm slowly introducing self-help podcasts into my daily routine to mix up the business ones I listen to. This podcast is so helpful and I find that every episode so far is applicable to most people. Love it, Melissa. Thank you. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. May I call you Jubilee? I love this review. It lit up my day and I'm just so thankful that you took the time. Do you make time for creativity? Is it a priority for you? If you're not immersed in the world of art, I'm gonna guess that you don't and it's not. And I think it's because of our beliefs about it. We think of artists and dancers and writers, but what we forget is that each and every one of us is a creator, whether we identify as one or not. The definition of creativity is the ability to make or otherwise bring into existence something new. So having ideas makes you creative. And maybe you're thinking, well, I know I'm not creative because I don't have many ideas. But what if you challenged that? If you never run, you might not be very fast or have much endurance. But does that mean that you can't develop those things? If you're not flexible, you stretch. If you're not strong, you train. If you're not knowledgeable, you learn. There was a time that I wasn't in the habit of reading very much, and when I tried to pick up a book, I could barely finish a paragraph before reaching for my phone or going to the fridge. I wasn't used to sitting and focusing, so I had to work that muscle. The problem is, we tend to think that the things we lack or struggle with just make up who we are, but that's just not true with almost everything. I personally lean into the growth mindset with everything because otherwise, how will you know for sure if the only thing holding you back is your beliefs about it? Just like Carol Dweck says in her book, Mindset, she talks about a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, which really just describes the underlying beliefs that people have about learning and intelligence. 
She found that when students believe they can get smarter, they understand that effort gets them there. Therefore, they put in extra effort and time, and that leads to higher achievement versus those with a fixed mindset who believe, I'm just not smart, or I'm just not strong, or I'm just not creative. And that belief will create your reality. Let me say that again. That belief will create your reality. And creating your reality is creative. You are creating even in your negative mindset. Instead, you're just creating something that doesn't serve you as well. And here's the thing. Creativity is a key part of life. Whether you're selling something or leading a team or you're trying to figure out something to do with your toddler on a Tuesday afternoon, we are always creating. So you can neglect this fundamental part of being human or you can lean in and get better at it day after day. And that's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Todd Henry. He's an author, an international speaker, a consultant, and advisor. He's also the author of four books, which have been translated into more than a dozen languages. And he was on the show back in episode 157, all about the hidden keys to motivation. And now he's back to coach us through some daily practices to keep ourselves inspired and brilliant. So three key things we will learn are how to move toward ambitions instead of away from frustrations, how to identify your unique genius, and keys to being more intentional about the creative process. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Todd Henry back to the show. Thank you, Melissa. It's great to be here. So it's been a couple of years since we talked last. Uh, what inspired you to really dive into, I mean, you, I know you've always focused on creativity, but what about this newest venture? Yeah. So, you know, over the past couple of years, I mean, we've all sort of been going through a lot of changes and uh, it's been an interesting period of time, I think, for a lot of us. And one of the things I was noticing as I was working with people in teams and organizations was that people who seemed to be thriving were those who had daily practices in their life, those who seemed to have some kind of infrastructure to support their ambitions. Those who were struggling were the people who were sort of relying on, prior to the pandemic, they were relying on the infrastructure of going to an office, having meetings, things like that. They didn't have sort of those 
personal disciplines, that personal infrastructure to keep them organized. They were sort of relying on the infrastructure of other things, whether that be their organization or whatever it was to keep them going. And so I started thinking, well, it's time for me to start working on another book. And I realized maybe that was an opportunity for me to connect and meet people where they are, which is in the day-to-day, you know, helping people establish some practices every day that position them to be, as I call it, prolific, brilliant, and healthy in life and in work. And uh, so that's what I did. I decided I was going to write a basically a daily reader for creative professionals, for people who have to go to work and solve problems every day to help them stay prolific, brilliant, and healthy. And it was going to encompass everything from focus to you know, how they spend their time, to how they relate to other people, to how they take care of their, their mental health and their, their physical health so that they're positioned to be able to, to do what they want to do in the world. And so that was kind of the, the idea behind it. And in retrospect, I guess one of the guiding metaphors I was using was, you know, if people are drowning, you don't want to toss them a 300-page manual about how to swim better. That's probably not going to help them in the moment. You know, you want to sort of give them bite-sized bits of advice. Well, you want to dive in and help them, but you also want to give them like bite-sized bits of advice to sort of help them get back into the boat. And so that's really what I was trying to do with Daily Creative was give people those little bite-sized reminders of things they probably already know but have forgotten and aren't implementing. This book came at the perfect time for me. It's, first of all, beautiful. I love the whole thing. But I really struggled with the same thing. With the pandemic, I also got pregnant right after the world shut down and had a baby. And then I was in newborn land, which is just like a whole mind warp. I, I don't know what day it is, what time of day it is. And right, then now right. I'm like just getting my freedom back and I'm pregnant again. And so I have all of these goals for before the baby comes and I'm finally feeling good enough to do it. And, you know, I think it was a lot of things. It was the switch up in, you know, I want to say expectations. I didn't even realize I had expectations until the world shut down and I had no idea what to expect from anything. Or is this a time that everyone's just chilling and and sitting back? Or is this where we should go hard or what's happening to the world? Like, (laughs) and so I recently have gone through a lot of different changes after struggling with the morning sickness and completely changed my diet and not even realizing how much of an effect what I thought was a super healthy diet was having on my mindset. And so now I'm just like happy and motivated again. And and so I have like a two hour long morning routine that's my absolute favorite time of the day that starts balls early in the morning before baby wakes up. And I oscillate between the business and the spiritual. It seems like when business is going really well, I'm like, okay, I can sit back and just work on myself. But then it's almost like every time I spend a little too long in that and I'm like, ah, I'm losing my motivation. I need to go back and stop being and start doing a little bit more. Maybe eventually I'll find a perfect balance between those two. But I'm back to like, okay, I'm doing stuff every day. And your book is just so fun because it's a, a different thing to focus on, a little journaling activity every single day. But it got me thinking, so many people just believe they're not creative or they have limitations around their ideas of creativity or even about what creativity is. And so what are your just core beliefs about creativity? Creativity is often conflated with art. So we think, oh, I don't write songs. I don't you know, dance. I don't paint paintings. So therefore, I'm not creative. You know, all I do is run a marketing team for a mid-sized medical device company or something, right? But I'm not creative. Well, no, if you have to solve problems every day, you are creative. Creativity is problem solving. 
we can't conflate creativity with art. So if you have to manage other people, if you're an engineer, for example, if you um, are an entrepreneur and you've launched a business and you have to solve any number of problems every day in order to keep your business going, those are creative acts. And by the very nature of what you have to do every day, you are confronted with uncertainty and you have to deal with the anxiety of that uncertainty and the weight of all that's undone. And you're probably making it up as you go, which most of us are doing in our roles, no matter how accomplished we are, we're all still kind of making it up as we go. You know, those of us who are a little more seasoned in our careers have a little more experience. Maybe we can synthesize patterns a little more quickly than others, but still we're making it up as we go. We're figuring it out as we go along. So I think that when we don't understand that, when we don't understand that the very nature of creative work is problem solving and, and wrestling with uncertainty, we don't position ourselves to deal with it because we don't think it's something that we have to, to deal with. You know, we don't think it's something that's for us. Um, that's for those people, the artists or whatever to deal with. But the reality is all of us have to deal with things like unnecessary complexity. All of us have to deal with things like fear of failure. What's going to happen if this idea doesn't, isn't executed well, or if it doesn't land the way I need it to land. These are inhibiting factors that affect, yes, they affect artists, but they affect problem solvers every single day. And if we're not aware of them and we don't have some disciplines or practices to help us deal with it, then we're going to struggle. Even the thing you were just talking about, that rhythm between sort of being and doing, you know, we we work out of that sense of who we are, um, not we work to get a sense of who we are, but th there's also some of that, right? Like as human beings, we're wired to derive a sense of meaning and value and purpose and even a, a part of how we see our identity from the value that we put in the world. Because when we create things, we make things, when we put them out in the world, ideas, you know, solutions, systems, whatever it is, whatever we're putting out in the world, we're basically confronting uncertainty and we're putting something into the world as our response to a problem, which is an expression of how we see ourselves in the world. It's an expression of our intuition. It's an idea that we had that we're not going to put into the world. Well, that's an incredibly personal thing to do that. And so we have to confront that fear of what if this isn't right? What if it's the wrong idea? What if my intuition is wrong? But also we have to embrace the fact that there is a rhythm to everything. You know, there's a rhythm, uh, a season when we need to be in that sort of restful, um, absorbing, you know, absorbing inspiration from other people and synthesizing and thinking. And then there's a season for just sprinting, full out sprinting. And I just need to get a bunch of stuff done. And you know, a lot of people want their life to be balanced. And a lot of people talk about life balance. And life balance is a complete myth, I think. I'm sorry if that steps on any toes or anybody listening. But the reason I think life balance is a myth is because things are balanced for about half a second before something happens and throws it off balance again, right? What we're aiming for is rhythm. We have to recognize there's an ebb and the flow to the seasons of our life. And a healthy rhythm means... I am acting in all of these different areas of my life and I'm present in all of these different areas of my life in different measures and different times. To try to have everything all at once, which is what people think of when they think of balance, means I'm basically just going to be mediocre at everything I do because I'm always, if I'm here, I think I should be somewhere else and I should, you know, but if we embrace the fact that life is about rhythm and effectiveness is about rhythm, if you look at great, I work with a lot of really great leaders from, from big organizations. If you look at how they lead their organizations, 
they could be in a meeting with, say, with shareholders, and they are you know really wrestling with a really important decision, and maybe even taking some heat from their shareholders, and maybe being berated by their shareholders for a decision that they made. And they can turn around and walk into the next room and give the most inspirational speech I've ever heard to a group of people on their team, as if none of that ever happened, right? Because they're just sort of, they're fully here, and they're dealing with this. And now they go over here, and they're fully there, and they're dealing with that. And it's just this sense of rhythm and flow. And I think great leaders, great professionals, great creative pros, great entrepreneurs are able to do that. And part of that is our mindset of embracing this this notion of rhythm, that there's an ebb and a flow to our life and nothing should get us too high and nothing should get us too low. And we just kind of go with the flow from, from thing to thing, from task to task and obligation to obligation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. That's 
a relief to look at it that way because I think it's so easy to beat ourselves up when we're really into one side of our lives and and a part of our mind is just thinking about what's lacking over here. But there's a time for that. And to give yourself permission to just see that, like, okay, it's okay that I'm here. And it might be, it might look exactly the same. I probably will always really focus on my spirituality and then really focus on my productivity and my success. And the only difference will be whether or not I'm beating myself up for what I'm not doing or if I'm just living into what I really am doing. But I wonder because it was just one of those happy accidents. I was p- preparing this interview and I was flipping through some of the my favorite tips that I've seen so far. One of your lessons was around stop complaining about the world and start making something. And it was just yeah. one of those things yeah. where I'm like, this is in the middle of the book, but this is where I need to start right now. And I haven't been complaining a whole lot, but my mind is. There's been a lot that's just, I just have some fears I need to work through and I can feel them holding me back. I'm like wondering, like reading about like upcoming food shortages and if I should start like jarring my own vegetables and where I'm going to put them. (laughs) I'm like, should I work on my business or should I put some carrots in a jar with vinegar? (laughs) What's going to be better for my future? And so where's your balance there of like, when do you think about the practical? Or I know a lot of people talk even about politics where some of the most successful people are like, I don't pay attention to any of that. But then other people are like, but do you want to be an informed citizen and like make changes and know what you're voting for? And and I I do kind of, I've, I've never been interested in politics until I felt like I had to be because it was all of a sudden really affecting me in the last few years. And now I'm like, I don't know what's healthy and what's not. Should I ignore it completely? <laughs> well, I think it's going to be different for, for different people, right? I think, and it, I think it depends too on, there's a difference between Uh, It's a great question. There's a difference between being aware and being a responsible citizen and allowing things to obsess your life. Stephen Covey talked about the the two forces, the sphere of concern and the sphere of influence. There are all kinds of things that are in our sphere of concern that we have zero influence over. And yet we spend a lot of time obsessed about the things that are in that sphere of concern that we have no influence over. What we need to do is focus on the things that are in our sphere of concern, but also in our sphere of influence, meaning these are things we're concerned about and we can do something about them. So, for example, I mean, you gave the political example, right, which I think is especially in in the U.S. right now, that's a very you know prominent thing that I think a lot of people are really wrestling with because it's become... Unlike, I mean, I'm almost 50 years old. I've never seen an environment like this in my life where it is just so polarizing and toxic, you know, on every level, regardless of what your political beliefs are. This is like the whole thing is just, I just want to like throw it all out and just, you know, but regardless of that, there are things that concern me, but I can't influence. And so me spending time sitting around worrying about things I can't influence does me zero good. Um, Can you believe what this person said, can you believe what that that person did? Can you believe well, I can't do anything about that. But what I can do is I can vote. I can have conversations with my friends. I can get involved to whatever degree I can get involved. If something really matters to me and it is affecting me, I can get involved in some capacity on a local level. Politically, those are things in my sphere of concern and my sphere of influence. However, Worrying about what might happen at some point in the distant future if some sort of thing happens um, that I have no influence over, that that doesn't 
help me at all. So the way I apply this back to work uh, in, in the creative realm, especially, is there are all kinds of things that I could be concerned about. What if I do this thing and then that happens and that happens and then it doesn't work out? Could happen. That's completely out of my sphere of influence. But what's in my sphere of influence is doing the work, showing up, you know, putting work into the world that I think is valuable to other people. Um, and that's all I can control. That's all I can do. It's the only thing I can influence is my day-to-day activity. If we learn to live within that sphere of influence and not be so worried about the things in that sphere of concern, the broader sphere of concern, then I think we're going to be healthier human beings, but I think also more productive professionals. When we allow those things in our sphere of concern to obsess us, our anxieties going to increase, right? Uh, I think it was uh, Will Rogers maybe said, worry is like paying interest on a debt that will never come due. And I think that's a really great quote. I probably just butchered it, but I think it's a really great quote because that's really what we're doing. When we're when we're worrying, we're obsessing about a future that might happen, but that we don't have any influence over necessarily and that you know we can't do anything about if it does happen. What we need to do is focus on what's in our sphere of influence right now and just show up and do the work every day. That's why, again, my emphasis on daily practices and daily creative, it was about that's something small you can do. You cannot control the next 20 years of your career arc. You can't control the decision that your boss's boss is going to make about you know your career path or whatever. You can't control those things. Those are outside of your sphere of influence. What you can do is show up every day and do the work. What you can do is establish some practices in your life to keep you prolific, brilliant, and healthy so that you're positioned to take advantage of opportunities when they come. Gretchen Rubin so eloquently said, what you do every day matters more than what you do once in a while. And I think that's very true. You know, those are things that are in our sphere of influence. Show up every day, you know, position yourself to be effective. And then when the opportunity comes, you're going to be ready to take advantage of it. One thing I remind myself too is when I'm in worry or fear, sometimes it's subtle and I don't even realize that I'm in in it because mm. I, I don't know that I'm thinking about it. It's just taken up so much like subconscious brain space, but it's a whole different part of my brain. And so it, it's like fight right. or flight tanks over and it's nearly impossible to be creative. So yeah, I show up to my computer and like, mm. I can't get anything done anyways. I, I better go just worry over here instead <laughs> or, you know, just... It's not a conscious, like, let me go worry. But what tends to happen for me is that when I'm in those states, I'll end up just like binging social media or something like that. It's like I want to tune out because I don't know what's happening in my brain. I just know that I can't think correctly and I don't feel that good. (laughs) So to remember, like, the only way that you're going to get into that creative space is to make sure that you have a clearer mind. And so I have to consciously do practices. Like I might journal about what I'm worried about and like actually lay it all out there, see that it's kind of ridiculous and then maybe solve it in the journaling activity and it it helps me feel better. (laughs) But what I also love is you have one of your lessons as this daily mental checklist to kind of get you in the right headspace to show up creatively. What are Mm -hmm. some of your favorite tips from that just daily mental checklist? Yeah. So there are a couple of things. Every day I review, I mean, I'm actually holding my notebook right here and I'm I'm showing you, but we're not showing anybody else because we don't have the video available, but I have what I call the main things. My The very first thing I do in the morning, every single day, I make my coffee, um, my breakfast, I sit down in my, my um, home office desk and I review what I call the big things, um, which is a list of a handful of things that I want to make sure are true every single day. And if these things are true, then I know things are going well. And if these things are not true, I know things are not going well. So it's sort of like a little 
check that I do every day on some of the leading indicators in my life. You know, we often look at results. We look at the scoreboard to determine whether things are going well. Um, but by the time we look at the scoreboard, it might be too late, you know, to, to know. So what I want to do is look at what are some of the leading indicators that tell me my life is headed in the right direction. So those are the big things. I also review what I call, well, what Chris McChesney calls wildly important goals. I have three of those that I review every single day to think about how I'm going to incorporate those into my day. I have a couple of quotes that I look at. And then every week I sit down on Sunday and I, I plan my week. What I'll do is I'll block off time on specific days for specific priorities. I have a set of key tasks, but I also have a set of key objectives. So objectives are outcomes. Tasks are things that need to be accomplished, but objectives are outcomes. So they're more conceptual. Um, I have to really think about, okay, did that happen or did it not happen versus I checked it off or I didn't check it off. Um, and then I have my annual goals that I review, which are broken down by quarter, but uh, I review those as well. And then I spend time studying for the next 45 minutes or so. Um, I'll spend time studying and thinking and journaling about what I read that day. And usually I'm reading something that's sparking my curiosity in some way. What's really interesting is for years, there have been a handful of kind of daily readers that I've gone through. And now Daily Creative has become part of my morning routine, which is really weird to be the person who wrote the book. And yet every day I'm sitting down and going through this with everybody else who's going through it. And today it was it was an entry about focus, function, and fire. And it really provoked some interesting thoughts in me that I, you know, some things I hadn't considered in a long time about what, what outcome am I really trying to achieve today? And am I making my process needlessly complex to accomplish that? And it really pushed me to think about my work in a new way. And it's interesting, I wrote the book that I needed myself, but I think it's important to have those little checkpoints in your life. I don't care how you do it or where you get it. It doesn't have to be daily creative. It could be whatever else, but you need to have some checkpoints in your life that are provoking you or, or more importantly, maybe evoking something in you. Provoking means I'm sort of pointing at you, sticking a finger in your chest and forcing you to respond. Evoking means I'm calling something out of you. And I think that's more important because we need other voices to call out of us things that are inside of us that we may not know are there uh, until somebody calls it out of us. And so that's what my morning routine consists of and has since 2002. That's been my morning routine for, I guess, 20 years now. And it's the best, really the probably the most effective hour of my day every single day. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 
I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's funny how we think if we create something that it's not the thing that we're going to use, like it should be for other people. When really I see that so many of my creative outputs, it's like my higher self or my inner voice or something like that. So of course it would be exactly what I need. And another thing, I am Mm. one of those novelty type persons, people like I do not like watching the same movie twice. If I know the ending of a book, I don't want to read it anymore. (laughs) And so, well, I kind of go between. Sometimes I'll read the ending just so I don't have to feel the anxiety while I'm getting there. But (laughs) but I, I just like to be surprised. I like to have new experiences. But lately I've been challenging that belief or that tendency, I, I guess you could call it, because it's kind of like when you do end up reading a book a second time. Like there's been a few that I have because they're just that good, like Psycho Cybernetics or Paul Selig's first book, I Am Word, was a really good one. Just some of the classics and I'll, I'll go back and it's like a whole new book. I might know mm-hmm. the main concepts from it, but the little ways that they say it will hit in a different way. And it makes so much sense because right. I'm a different person when than when I first read it. Like I have new understandings about the world, new experiences. I even have a different like chemical makeup by that time. And so it's a it's a okay. new experience every single time, even when you are repeating it. And so going back to something that you create, you were this person then. It's been mm-hmm. days, weeks, months, years since you've created that. How do you see that? It might even be more enlightening because it's not just this in- random insight. It's your random insight that you're you're kind of coming back to. Yeah, it is. And, and again, so this book was written not to be some brand new thing that nobody had ever thought of before, right? Um, wow, here's some brand new secret information that nobody's ever told you. Everything that needs to be said has been said at some point about the things that we read about, right? There might be some new novel twist or new way of talking about it or whatever. It wasn't written to be that. It was written to be daily reminders of things that we probably already know or suspect, but have forgotten because we're busy. We just, we go about our life and we just don't have those reminders in our life of things like, oh, you know what? My overhead, like yesterday's entry was about um, keeping low overhead. You know, are, is your overhead getting to the point where it's inhibiting your creative freedom or your ability to make decisions? You know, that's a, a thing that just happens in life where your overhead creeps up and creeps up and creeps, creeps up to the point where you start to feel hemmed in, where you you don't have flexibility and, and freedom because... You, it's everything you can do just to service the overhead in your life, whatever that overhead is, right? Literal or metaphorical. Um, those are little reminders that, you know, we all know those things, but 
it's helpful just to have somebody tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, how's your overhead? You know, how's your, is your overhead inhibiting your creative freedom? Or even just occasionally, like again, the other day, the entry was about dreaming big and it was about Walt Disney and how I have over my shoulder, people can't, actually, you can't see it in the frame either. I have the 1957 business model for the Walt Disney Corporation. And what's interesting is everything points back to all, they have licensing and theme parks and movies and music and all these things, merchandise, everything points back to the idea factory. Everything points back to the creative output of the film studio. Um, And Walt Disney understood that the creativity of the film studio was at the absolute center of everything that they did. And his ideas were so huge. People don't realize this about Walt Disney, but, you know, we talk about Epcot Center. Most people think about, oh, it's a quaint little park with, you know, little themed areas for different parts of the world and stuff like that. That's what they think of when they think of, of Epcot. But Walt Disney was trying to build a brand new kind of city. He made a series of videos shortly before he died outlining his vision for Epcot. And it was basically, it was experimental prototype community of tomorrow. The people movers that we ride around on now that are such novelties, that was public transportation. People were going to be living in this planned community and commuting to work on the people movers. And it was a brand new way of thinking about planning a city and a community. He was trying to change the way we think about city planning, not build like another little theme park. Um, People don't realize that. He was thinking so huge. And here's a guy who 30 years before was drawing little mouse cartoons for a little Kansas City newspaper. And now he's thinking about how do we reinvent the city? We have to train ourselves to think big. And it's easy for us to get into these ruts where we're only thinking in our own little micro niche of whatever it is that we do. We have to jog ourselves out of that. So again, that for me was a little tap on the shoulder the other day, that entry. Like, are you thinking big enough? Or are you just settling in? You know, we need reminders like that um, consistently if we want to be producing not just the work that we're capable of producing, but occupying the space as human beings that we're capable of occupying. And so often when we're involved in a business or a project, we might start with that vision. Like that's why we started doing this in the first place. But it's so easy to get bogged down at the day-to-day and then you're just catching up. And it reminds me of one of your lessons about making sure that you're always moving toward ambitions versus running away from frustrations. How do you check in with yourself to make sure that you still have that big vision in mind rather than just like putting out the little fires and like making sure your little tasks are done every single day? That's something I often have conversations with people who are bouncing from job to job where they can't seem to stay in a place or it's always, you know, their manager or their organization that's at the root of the problem. And I'm like, well, you've, worked for four different places in the last two years. And it seems like every one of those places had the same problem. Hmm, I wonder if there's a through line here. But I think a lot of people spend their life what I call chasing vapor. They, they're they running away from something rather than moving towards something. They don't have a positive vision of what they're trying to do with their life. Instead, they are doing everything they can in their life to avoid pain, discomfort, conflict. And so they spend a lot of time running away. Now, There are certainly moments, like, for example, abusive relationships or even abusive organizations where it's perfectly okay to say, I need to get myself out of this circumstance. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about emotional or psychological discomfort that comes from maybe conflict or not liking an environment or not feeling appreciated properly by an organization or something like that. 
to the point where we think there's always the grass is always greener. There's always something better out there for me. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna go over to this place or I'm gonna go do this thing because that's gonna be better for me. And then they find six months later they're in the same place of dissatisfaction because they brought the dissatisfaction with them. They they're not moving toward a positive vision. They're running away from discomfort. So we have to have an understanding a of who we are and what we're trying to do in this world, the value that we want to bring to other people. Because at the end of the day, our body of work is any place in our life where we add value to the lives of other people. And that can be anything from I start a business, I, you know, I make a product, I you know, deliver services to a client to how I tip the barista at Starbucks, right? That's part of my body of work too, because it's part of the value that I bring to the world of how I see myself in the world. So our body of work is any place in our life where we add value where it didn't previously exist. And it's a portfolio. You know, your work is your, your job is just one small part of that portfolio of your body of work. You have to have a vision for what that body of work will look like. You know, at the end of your life, you're going to point to a delta, you're going to point to a change, and you're going to ask yourself, does that reflect me? Does that reflect what I'm capable of? Does that reflect my ambitions? Does that reflect the change that I wanted to create in this world while I was breathing around this earth? We're all going to ask that question at some point. And that big delta, that big body of work is comprised of a lot of little, a lot of little deltas. Little changes, little everyday decisions, ways in which we choose to spend ourselves in a meaningful way in the pursuit of what matters to us. You know, what, as Gretchen Rubin said, what you do every day matters more than what you do once in a while. So if you can't answer that question for yourself of what am I aspiring to do in this world? What are the things that really matter to me? And what am I chasing after in my life? That's something you need to spend some time thinking about because if you don't have a good answer for that, you're very likely to spend a lot of your time running away from discomfort rather than navigating toward whatever that North Pole is for you. For me, that question took a while. And I Mm. remember thinking that maybe I just wasn't one of those people with a purpose. And it was even more confusing for me because I actually have a lot of things that I'm good at like <laughs> like not to toot my yeah. own horn but like i i used to love acquiring skills and talents and like busting them out at parties like <laughs> like i remember yeah. what the first time i like played the titanic song at a random high school party and no one knew i could play the piano and it was just like my golden hour <laughs> and so i just yeah. know how to do a lot of little things i have a lot of knowledge and in different areas i've had a lot of jobs and so on one hand this one thing I was working towards where I'm like, yes, I just go and want to build myself up like a video game character, you know? But then on the other, I'm like, did I just screw myself? Because I didn't dedicate time to master one. And even if I wanted to, I don't know which one of these things I like the most to master. And so mm-hmm. I had to ask the question and stew on it for a while, like a couple of years. Sure. And I think I could have done it faster if I would have really put my mind to it. But I was constantly battling this the two voices. I didn't really know how to navigate that yet. And so I was saying, no, I can do this, you know, just kind of put it out there and it'll come to me. Like, I just need more information. (laughs) I need to like be aware that I have this question and maybe I'll start to answer it over time. And then I also would have that voice that was like, you didn't master it anything and blah, blah, blah. And all those things I just went over. And so I think that got in my own way. And it was the imposter syndrome really that you talk about that was preventing me from going hard on one of the things because it's not how I viewed myself yet. And what I learned was that 
I was looking at myself from other people's perspective. I was, that's the only way I could really have imposter syndrome because I was worried about what other people would think if all of a sudden I was posting on social media about this, this, and this, and all of a sudden I'm focused on mental health or I'm focused on helping people. It's like, who's Melissa? Last time I hung out with her, we were drunk, you know? <laughs> and so, right, sure. And, and sure. so it was a combination of two different tips that you use. Uh, is was that working through imposter syndrome and really understanding that it's preventing you from trying something new and not just being who you're meant to be, but maybe figuring out who you're meant to be, which was my case. And then also the one which I love is refusing to take your best work with you to the grave because mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, I can sit here and talk myself out of it over and over again, but what would I rather have? Like a couple years where I'm worried about what other people think, which by the way, my favorite tip is like the only people that are criticizing you or the people that are doing less than you. <laughs> that one I just think of sure. every single time. Like, am I more worried about these random people that I haven't seen some, since high school that are going to be wondering who is she to be posting this? Because that's probably a reflection of their own inner voice when they try something new. Or do I want to be saying that to myself when I'm 90 years old and I'm like, I'm not doing anything new now. And I'm like, I let all of these fears that were illusions in general hold me back from creating anything. <laughs> you know? Right, right, for sure. Yeah. And and that's an important thing to wrestle to the ground, right? Um, first of all, I will say you don't discover the space that you occupy in the world by sitting around and thinking. You discover by acting, right? Go out and do things and fail and figure out, oh, these are the things I seem to do really well compared to other people. And these are things I don't seem to do as well as other people. And that's great. Those are good things to discover and learn. I think one of the reasons we don't is because we're afraid we're going to discover that we're not good at the things that we hope we're good at. Um, and so we don't go out and we don't try things. We don't experiment and, and figure out what we're good at. But I think also related to imposter syndrome, there's a difference between, there's a difference between I don't have the natural skill or aptitude to be able to do something that is a skill-based thing. And I have the skill, but I don't have the emotional will to go out and put it into the world, right? So no matter how much I want it to be true, um, I am never going to be a professional basketball player, for example, right? Like my biology and my, you know, well, my age, I'm 50 now, but even back in the day, right? Like it's just not going to happen. It just is not something that's in the cards for me. That's not imposter syndrome, right? That's like just a recognition of my limitations as a human being. There are biological you know, limitations that I have. Um, I don't have a 50 inch vertical leap, right? Like it's just not going to happen. Now the difference would be someone who does have that skill set and they just can't put themselves out there because they don't feel like they're worthy of putting themselves out there or they don't feel like they're they're capable or they're afraid to fail. They're afraid to test their limits and discover they actually have some, right? And we have to be be careful to distinguish between those two things. Not everybody, as we all know, not everybody who aspires to sing on American Idol should be singing on American Idol. Um, or should they, they because that's entertaining. <laughs> It is entertaining, but I don't think that's what they're trying to yeah. do, right? They're not trying to entertain us in that way. So, but the, the reality is they just didn't have people in their life to say, hey, you know what? Like, they're, you're great at a lot of things. This is not your core competency. This is not in your, your wheelhouse, right? Maybe you should try some other stuff. Maybe singing is not your thing. We need people to help us discover who we are. We discover ourselves in the context of community. Um, and that's one sure pathway around imposter syndrome too. Because if you have trusted people around you who are saying, hey, 
Not that, but here's the thing that you just do better than anybody else around you. And you need to do more of this thing. And I'll tell you, for me, what that was early in my career, I discovered the thing that it wasn't book learning. It wasn't something I got from college. It wasn't something that I, you know, am necessarily like picked up from a book or something. It was my my ability to synthesize and connect dots and communicate things in a clear, concise, and coherent way was something that came across really early in my career. So I would be in a meeting and we'd be looking at this really complex thing and I could say, well, this and this and this and this and boom, 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 boom and connect the dots and tell a story and people would be like, that's exactly what it is. We'll, we'll follow you. Wherever you take us, we'll follow you because I was able to articulate the problem more clearly than other people. I discovered that early, but it took me another 15 years to realize, you know, I maybe I should be writing books and maybe I should be like teaching people because that seems to be a good expression of this skill set is for me to write books and teach people. It was a long time before I came to that realization that I needed to do a an occupational change to match my vocational aptitude. And that's something I think people often conflate as well. We talked about the conflation of creativity and art. People conflate vocation and occupation. They think I need to be doing a job that perfectly reflects who I am and my value. And No, sometimes a job is just a job. A job is a way for you to make money so that you can go do the things that matter to you, right? So you go and you, you do your best and you add value and you make money. And then you get to go spend all of that time and flexibility and freedom that that money earns you to go and do things that really matter a lot to you. Because that's the part of your portfolio that really reflects your vocation, which is what's being called out of you. So I just think we have to be really, really careful about some of the narratives that culture whispers in our ear. Uh, we hear stories about people who are, you know, they followed their passion at age 19 and now they're a 23-year-old multi-billionaire and okay, fine, that's fine. But that's an aberration. That's a, a really rare circumstance. Most people spend a huge chunk of their life discovering who they are and then a huge chunk of their life applying that learning later, right? Later in life. Maybe when you get to your, your 30s, your mid-30s, your 40s is when you really start recognizing, oh, I have some capabilities here and some learning and now some wisdom. I've, I've seen some things that have some patterns that I can help other people. Uh, I can apply to other people's problems and help them because I've seen some things. I've been around for a while. So talent will get you a seat at the table, but it's daily practices and ultimately that wisdom that keeps you in the game long-term. And so I just, my, my strong encouragement to people, it's a very long-winded answer. My strong encouragement to people is be patient. Who you are will develop over time like film in a dark room, not like an instant photo. We want immediate answers. You know, we want instant photos. We want to know exactly who we are. Your understanding of who you are is going to emerge over time like film in the dark room. You're going to see clues, 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 and then boom, things will come into full view at some point. But it's going to take some time for that to happen. So just be patient and pay attention to the clues. I did a practice when I was at my wits end trying to figure this out. <laughs> I had gone through all those stages of being like, maybe I'm not 
meant to do this, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, maybe I should do all the cheesy practices in the back of these finding your purpose books. And one of the practices that I did was I actually asked for feedback with 11 different people that I knew from different areas of my life, like an old roommate, an old coworker, my mom even, somebody I dated before. And I asked what I was good at. And it's funny, it was very similar to your strong suit, which is what gave me the idea for podcasting because I can call back to something that happened 100 episodes ago if it stands out to me. And and I'm really lately feeling called to write a book. Mm. I have two different ideas for books and one of them's a daily mind love, kind of similar to your daily creative. So yeah. I'm still sort of uh, absorbing <laughs> all of the ideas of how to do that because it's, to me, creating an hour-long episode, yes, I do writing for it. And yes, I, I craft the message and, and all this stuff, but it's so much more of a feat to write something so big, you know? And I know Mm -hmm. one of the things that you talk about is is shifting from those short-term visions to a long-term view of thinking. When it comes to book writing, how long-term is that for you? Like, how do you zoom in and zoom out to get the work done today versus keeping your eye on the big goal? What time length do you set for yourself when doing a bigger project like that? Yeah. The first thing I would say to that is, so I have, I already have my next two books planned out. Like I know what they're going to be. I've already got the outlines. I've got, I know exactly what I'm going to do. So in terms of vision, my timeline is very long. In terms of execution, my timeline is very short. What I mean by that is this, no one writes a book. People don't write books. They write words that turn into paragraphs, that turn into pages, that turn into a book, right? So if you want to write a book, the best way to write a book is to say, I am going to write 500 words a day, no more, no less, every single day for the next six months, five days a week. You do that, you will have, at the end of it, you will have a draft of a book. You won't have a book yet, but you'll have a draft of a book. If you just write 500 words a day, every day for the next six months, you'll, you'll have more words than you need for a book in six months. Um, the reason people don't do that is because it feels very mechanical. It doesn't feel very sexy to people. They think of writing a book as I'm going to go sit in a cafe and think deep thoughts and smoke a pipe or, you know, <laughs> smoke a whatever, smoke a whatever, smoke whatever you, you got. my right? brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm just going to sort of, it's going to be like this romantic thing. And the reality is that writing a book is just making a lot of clickety-clack sounds on the keyboard and cranking out 500 words a day. And sometimes in the midst of that, you get inspired, which is wonderful when it happens. And sometimes it's just, I need to get through the words today. I need to get through, need to get stuff out of me today. And over time, you get better and better and better at that craft, at that practice of getting the words out on the page. You know, I, some days I love the output of my writing and some days I think this is terrible. And here's the funny thing about it. Six months from now, I'll go back and read the ones I thought were terrible. And I'm like, those are maybe some of my best passages. And the ones I loved are sappy. They're overly sentimental. They don't, they're not concise enough. You know, it's too flowery or whatever. We're terrible judges of our own work when we're in the midst of the process. And so we need to just trust the process, get the work done every single day. Like I said, you don't write books, you write words that turn into sections that turn into chapters that turn into a book. So sit down, do the work every day. I use a tool that helps me organize that. I write in Scrivener. And you know, I have friends who open a Microsoft Word document and they start a book by just like typing front to back. And I'm, I'm just like, it blows my mind. I have no idea how people do that because 
inevitably you're going to get to a place where you're like, I have no idea where to go with this. Well, what do you do then, right? If you don't know where to go next, you have no place to jump to. I use a tool called Scrivener that A, keeps track of my daily word count. B, keeps track of the project word count, which is great. C, it allows me to keep my outline and my research in one place. But D, the most important thing Scrivener does for me is it allows me to jump around from section to section. So if today I want to write chapter six, I'll write 500 words of chapter six. Tomorrow, maybe I want to write chapter two. I'll jump into chapter two and I'll write 500 words of chapter two. Whatever I feel like writing on that day, I can just jump right in and and write wherever I want to write instead of feeling like I have to have this linear thing that I'm working through. Um, And that helps me as well, because there are days when maybe I don't know exactly where to start. I've got an idea for chapter two, but I don't really have an idea for chapter six. Great. I can just go write part of chapter two today because I have an idea or I heard a story yesterday I want to incorporate, or maybe I had a learning yesterday that I want to incorporate. So the only solution to doing long arc work is daily, steady, measured progress, punctuated by sprints, because you will have to sprint from time to time. So I say that, and then I get my edit back from my editor, and the editor says, okay, now this 90,000-word manuscript I've just gone through, I need it back to me in a week and a half. So you have a week and a half now to go through these 90,000 words and make any changes you want so that we can do the next pass of the edit, right? So that's the sprint part of it is, okay, now for the next two weeks, I'm like spending all of my waking hours <laughs> you know, editing this book, which is fine. But the writing process, the creative part of it, is daily measured, you know, short chunks of really intense work. And I always do that first thing in the day because it gets it out of the way. I don't love to write. It's not one of my favorite things in the world. I love the outcome of it, but I don't love to write. So doing it very first thing gets it out of the way and then I can go on and do whatever else I need to do and I know my writing is done for the day. And that really applies to so many things because I've learned whether I'm working on writing or anything else, like there's days where I wake up and I'm like, I feel inspired to be creative. And if I had all administrative tasks to do and I force myself to stick to that, then I'm really not going with my own energetic flow. I'm not listening to what I need at that time. And yes, there are times where you need to force yourself to do something that you aren't in the mood to do in that moment. But I love the way the kind of visualization of like going to chapter two and chapter five and like looking at any of your your projects that way and and setting time aside. I've heard from a lot of writers, uh, but I think it just goes for anything around the creativity environment is that you have to just leave space to do it. If you're not feeling creative, mm-hmm. if you're not feeling inspired to write or inspired to paint or whatever your thing is, just sit there in front of the page until words come out. And if you don't end up using them, whatever, but you're continuing your momentum, you might get inspired by it. You might look back at it later on and realize it's not as bad as you thought. I know that I judge my work based on the mood that I'm in. So if I'm in a negative mood, I'm like, I can't do this. And then I write something and I'm like, ah, this isn't that good. Like I I can't see it for what it is because I'm seeing it through the filter of my own mood. So (laughs) instead of going back and just, that's why when I'm in a good mood and I go back and I'm like, hey, this is... This is pretty awesome. It, it just is right. is really helpful. And so if you are going to leave listeners with one action item to really focus on this week to help maybe begin that momentum of sparking uh, creative thinking, what would that one action be? People expect creative ideas to happen in the cracks and crevices of their busy life, and it doesn't work that way. You have to have some time carved out to be present with your thoughts, to synthesize, to connect dots, to think about what you're thinking, which 
you know, sort of metacognition is a huge part of the creative process, which is you, know, you have thoughts going on in your mind that you don't even know or aren't aware are happening. And because you're so busy, you're bouncing from thing to thing and you're bouncing from social media to social media or whatever it is, you don't make those connections that are right there in front of you. That could be the next breakthrough for your work. So what I would encourage people to do is to dedicate some time in your life to being alone with your thoughts, to studying, to absorbing the great thoughts of other people. And when I say studying, I mean, literally like sit down with a book and force yourself to have to sit and read and pay attention and keep a constant stream of thought without your phone there, without the ping, you know, bouncing, bouncing you from place to place and then spend some time thinking about how those things apply to your life and just spend some time just reflecting on patterns that you're seeing in your life. Just doing that alone will go a long way toward helping you achieve the breakthroughs that you want to have in life and in work and your relationships in all areas because you can't separate any of those things out. You sit at the center of all of those things. So if you want results, you need infrastructure to support those results. And infrastructure looks a lot like daily practices. So what daily practices or systems are you going to put in place to help you achieve those results? That's the question we all should be asking. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about your several books, all of them amazing, and your other work, where's the best place for them to connect? So you can go to my personal website, which is toddhenry.com. There you can learn more about my work and about my podcast, The Accidental Creative. Since 2005, we've been doing weekly episodes, so... Big, big back catalog there. And you can also learn about all my books at toddhenry.com. Or if you go to dailycreative.net, you can learn more about the new book, Daily Creative, and also the community that we're building around daily practices. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 251. Your challenge for this week is to make some space for creativity. I know that it can feel difficult if you're not used to being creative or this isn't something that you do, but I'm reminded about writers. Every writer I know talks about how often they just have to sit in front of a computer and do nothing and wait for inspiration to come. That is one way of doing it, but there are a lot of other ways as well. It could be journaling with some inspired prompts. It could be going out into the world and observing people rather than defaulting to your phone. It could be going on a long walk without your headphones in. All of these are ways that we can create space for inspiration or creativity. I think the fallback that we need to be careful of is putting too much pressure on it. If you're sitting in an empty room and you're like, be creative, it's almost a guaranteed way to make it not happen. Instead, play with your mind. Ask yourself questions. Look at things deeper and question your beliefs about them. Imagine random objects in your home having personalities. I don't know. There's so many ways to do this. It's just about thinking differently than you normally do and allowing yourself the space, which is the most important part, I think, of self-growth, is to give yourself the space for what you want to create, whether it's with creativity or a new habit or self-growth or whatever it is. You have to create the space to do so rather than defaulting to all of your old patterns because those old patterns are going to create what always has been and not something new. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. And while you're there, take a screenshot of this episode and tag me and mindlovepodcast and I will reshare your share because it's just a fun thing to do, you know? 
If you'd like to support Mind Love, the best way to do that is by joining Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium, where you get a whole buttload of exclusive episodes just for premium members, over 50 of them and soon to be 100. And you also get ad-free listening experience, early release episodes, bonus meditations, and you get it all in a private feed that you import to your favorite podcast player one time. And then all of this content automatically comes to you. You can also do that right in the Apple Podcast app, but I do prefer going through my website. There's a little extra bonuses. You can actually log into your premium portal if you sign up that way versus in the Apple Podcast app where I have really no control over your membership whatsoever. I'm also extremely tickled by five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, like really tickled by them. And I just might read your review on the show if you take a moment to do so. Whether it's short or long, I'm grateful either way. And finally, you can access any of my sponsors at mindlove.com slash sponsors. I have a little audio blurb there so you know exactly what I think about these sponsors. I'm super picky about who I allow to sponsor because I only want companies and brands that I can give an authentic endorsement to. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.